Today I'm talking to Catherine McCulloch, who has written a book called Dancing with Deception. Intriguing title, that is. Catherine did a Bachelor of Arts at Australian National University in Asian Studies, then went on to teach languages and to teach English. She joined the Army as a linguist and teacher. After 20 years in the Army, Catherine left the military to freelance as a military history editor with Australian Army History Unit. Catherine's first book was Willingly Into the Fray, which is a collection of stories to mark the centenary of Australian army nursing. The real stories in this book gave insight into nursing during wartime, which forms the background in Catherine's latest novel, not a book but a novel, set, however, in real time, called Dancing with Deception. This novel is about power, politics and passion. It is set in occupied France, particularly Paris, during World War II in a Red Cross hospital. Catherine, your military experience and your knowledge of nursing must have been invaluable in describing such things as uniforms, equipment, both army and nursing. How much research did you do to depict accurately the conditions in wartime Paris? Uh, Well, Fiona, in fact, it was very, very useful to have that sort of background. And also, as a military history editor, I exploited shamelessly those of my lovely authors who'd actually written on wartime nursing. And I was very, very fortunate because I wanted to paint a very, very detailed picture. And at one point, I called um, Mike Tyquin, who actually wrote the history of um, the Australian Army Medical Service, and said to him, Mike, a young girl walks into a hospital in Sydney in 1938. What does she smell? And what's on the floor and what are the walls like? So wasn't I privileged to be able to find someone who could tell me that? Well, that must have been very useful because the smells and the sights come through in your book. Good. Well, I hope they do because the way I I did it was to push through with the actual plot and then go back and almost as a colouring in exercise, just apply detail. And that was such fun. I bet it was. (laughs) And do you know modern day Paris at all? No, no, I don't. And actually, I deliberately stayed away from modern Paris because I thought it might somehow colour my view. And I wanted to find that Paris that existed between about 1939 and 1944, and which various authors who have called on some of the records of the time and the first-hand memories of people who lived through the occupation described it variously as dark and dismal and other aspects that I think don't apply to it now. But you did take a few liberties. You moved the Gestapo headquarters. Why did you do that? I did. In fact, yes, more liberties than you think. (laughs) (laughs) I needed to position one character fairly close to another. And so there were several areas where the Gestapo operated, one of which was in um, Avenue Fock and another in Rue de Saussette. But I needed to have them a little closer to the hospital. My hospital, the Red Cross Hospital that I describe in the novel, is actually based on what was the American hospital in World War II. And the American hospital was an extraordinary institution which was actually decorated by the French government or its staff were decorated at the end of the war for its role in, for example, rescuing downed airmen and hiding um, French resistors who needed caring. 
for admitted treatment and that sort of thing. So I positioned the headquarters of my new Gestapo chief who came in sort of towards the beginning of the occupation period of the novel, quite close to the hospital, for my own purposes, actually. <laughs> yes, I can understand that now. But the American hospital in World War II was neutral or tried to maintain a facade of neutrality, did it not? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think what happens in situations such as that is that neutrality is strained, and that was something I tried to convey in my novel as well. Mm. Whereas people are desperate to stay on the right side of an authority, especially an occupying authority, which could close the hospital down and send everyone off to various camps at any time. At the same time, they just couldn't resist the call of caring for some of these, especially the downed Allied airmen. And we're talking about people such as Sumner Jackson, who was the senior surgeon in the American hospital, and he and his French wife, and indeed their son, were a very big part of the resistance network in the area, but at the same time tried to maintain the hospital's neutrality so that it could stay open. And unfortunately, he and his wife and son fell foul of the authorities. They were betrayed. They ended up in camps, and he unfortunately died right at the very end of the war, although his wife and son survived. Oh, my goodness. Did that hospital also try to keep the activities, which were contrary to their neutrality, away from the matron of the hospital or the head of the hospital so that he or she could, with hand on heart, say, we are neutral? I think at that particular time it was very difficult to know who to trust. And that wasn't a case of people preferring the occupying regime and saying, well, you know, I think I'll side with the Germans. It was very much a case of the reign of terror, if you like, that was imposed and this enormous network of informers. So trust was a quality very, very hard to come by in occupied Paris. And while Sumner Jackson, as a senior surgeon, was senior enough to make those sort of decisions, the other heads of the hospital were variously informed or kept in the dark as he felt he could trust them. And in my hospital, the one I've actually put on the site but made into a Red Cross hospital, the matron is unaware of what's going on, probably just as well. (laughs) Until the very last minute when she discovers this bed that's been modified, shall we say, to hide an airman. Yes, that's right. Uh, This matter of trust is a thread that you have woven right through the book from the very beginning because you make your main heroine, Melissa, deceive her parents right at the very beginning with her first lover. Indeed, and trust is a very, very important element. And it's also one of those elements that you can push and pull when you're writing. And when you're reading, you sometimes move into grey areas of trust, even though you may initially have thought you either trust someone or you don't. Is that not the case? Oh, Um, yes, you've done that beautifully, yes. So I suppose that's why I called it Dancing with Deception because deception is an element that plays on every character throughout the book. Every character at some point deceives someone else, even those who are most precious to them. And Marissa, who is quite... um, Well, she's quite a straightforward sort of person. She doesn't like deception. She doesn't want to deceive people, but she finds herself moving into areas where deception is probably more important than revelation particularly with with her first love, who um, would attract terrible scandal if everyone knew exactly what was going on. So it was very important not to tell. (laughs) That's also because you set Marissa and John later on in the book 
who are the main protagonists, you set them as coming from very privileged backgrounds, uh, Marissa in Sydney and John being brought up in Cologne with wealthy parents with beautiful houses. Was this a deliberate strategy? In some ways it was because um, I wanted to look at the way she would transform and what motivated her to look for what in those days was regarded as quite a commonplace profession, that is nursing, was something that working girls did. And certainly her mother had never envisaged her daughter going into such a, a commonplace profession. But Marissa was all about... She was very, very motivated by strong women, and she had a number of strong women role models to look at, two of whom were nurses. And I think that's really what pushed her into a profession also where she felt she could make a difference and actually have a life that had some value. John is more complex in that his, um, he moved in publishing circles um, and that was a very useful entree for me into his later profession. Um, his wealth meant that he could travel. It gave him also um, perhaps a lot of connections that he may not have had were he from a, a different sort of background. And I really enjoyed the movement throughout the continent. He could go and be educated in England but come back to Cologne and they had a house in Switzerland and they moved in all sorts of circles and, of course, he was in Paris on a regular basis. So he was truly continental and I found that very useful in putting together the plot. I couldn't see that because... John was able to achieve some sort of Teflon coating for himself once he had published Hitler's watercolours because that must have endeared him to the Führer. Uh, indeed. And Hitler himself, even in history, was always searching for recognition in all sorts of ways, especially as an artist. And he never, never gained that recognition, even though, of course, now any of his um, fairly ordinary watercolours would probably sell for an enormous amount on any market. However, the crux of the matter was that John really came into orbit as a golden child because he had this eye for what would attract a dollar in the uh, in really in the lithograph and, and artworks market as well as in publishing. And, of course, that one chink in Hitler's armour at the time, which was, of course, his artistic proclivities, was exploited very, very carefully by John, even though at the time he probably didn't know how important it was because Hitler was still on the rise. And this, of course, enabled him to move, as you say, in a sort of Teflon-coated manner through what was a very, very sticky time. And as he says to someone towards the end, look, I never even joined the Nazi party. Well, he didn't have to because he'd played his cards so well early. And in fact, he's, in some ways, he's modelled on a very, very interesting character from history who was known variously as the interrogator. And he was a, a German officer, a young German officer, who was an interrogator of American airmen in the middle and later part of the war. But his method of interrogation was very, very calm, was very precise. He never used force or violence, never raised his voice. And he was incredibly successful. And I found him fascinating. I thought, oh, I have to use this somewhere. <laughs> mm, you've done that very well. Also, Catherine, you have made music a very important element in Marissa's life. Was this one way to build an attraction between Marissa and her first lover, the handsome Russian gorgeous Otto? <laughs> It was indeed, and I must say I'm very much a music lover myself. My daughter plays the piano beautifully, and a lot of the pieces featured in the book are her favourite pieces and pieces that she would play for me, so in some ways it's putting her in the book as well. 
but I found music to be in some ways a way of reducing tension and pulling Marissa away from what was a terribly difficult time. For example, when she was struggling with working for the resistance and modelling for Madame and working at the hospital, not really knowing which way she was going, but there were times when she could step aside and just play the piano and that would take her away. And that gave you an entree into her mind. It allowed you to see her mind as it worked and the way that she could commune with people through that music, particularly the beautiful old Jewish pianist who she absolutely loved and then mourned when she thought she'd lost him in a, a camp somewhere. Having mentioned Otto, uh, let's explore the love scenes in your book. Marissa's first sexual encounter with this charismatic Otto is the blueprint, I believe, of how every young girl should lose her virginity. <laughs> you, you achieved a subtle balance between the practiced ardor of Otto and the naive eagerness of Marissa. It's one of the most beautiful, passionate and persuasive descriptions of lost sexual innocence that I have read in modern literature. How easy is it to write love scenes such as this? Um, it, I must say I thought that it needed a delicate touch, and thank you very much for, for appreciating that. I was very concerned that it would be vulgar and that it would not convey the joy that she experienced. Uh, it was important in a novel in which you describe a young woman's transformation from adolescence through to womanhood. Somewhere along the line she has to have an encounter with a, a young man or an older man or someone where she actually makes that transformation. And he, of course, had had his eye on her earlier. My mother rebuked me for this. She said, oh, dear, she was far too young when he first met her. And I said, it's okay, she was sensible when she was 16. But, of course, by the time she met him later, she was much older. She'd been around, she'd been a nurse for two or three years by then, and she very much felt that she was a woman rather than a young girl. She'd lived away from her family. She'd been surrounded by other girls who had various experiences, romantic and, and sexual as well. And by that time, I felt that she needed to make that one step further. And, of course, he came back into her life and uh, it was, I thought, also a rather beautiful way for her to make that transition. Although, of course, it was terribly, terribly risky. But riskiness adds so much to the passion of an encounter. Uh, and this, this is echoed again in the wartime encounter with John. Because for me, living anywhere that is, or doing anything that's dangerous, just adds to the intensity. And there's actually a fabulous book written on just this sort of thing and set in World War II by Lara Fiegel, who wrote a book called The Love Charm of Bombs. Isn't that a brilliant title? Oh my goodness, <laughs> and, yes. Isn't it brilliant? And she wrote about Graham Greene, Elizabeth Bowen, Henry York, who writes as Henry Greene, and Rose McCauley, who lived through the Blitz and had various romantic encounters through the Blitz, which they've all declared they would never have any other time. But it was the heightened intensity of that period, I, I guess, increased their ardour, increased their sense of wanting to risk. And that also permeates dancing, that Marissa was prepared to take those risks. But getting back to your original question, it was difficult in a way to write a scene that was both delicate, but also conveyed sexual passion in a way that, that the reader would feel it was genuine and was intense, but without going too far. Yes, this without going too far bit is something you really nailed throughout the book. We could understand all her sexual encounters all the way through, and in fact, if they hadn't happened, we wouldn't have believed it. Uh, but you didn't take them too far, so that's oh, well that's done. Good. 
thank you. <laughs> Look, um, tragedy uh, visits Marissa too and dictates how she reconciles some of the awful horrors that flood into her daily life. Uh, it's one thing to deal with death and misery as a carer, but when it becomes personal, it draws on all her resources. You've made her do a lifetime's growing up in about four years. Was that your intention? I think so. And this, I think, was probably typical for the period that young people went to war as enthusiastic youngsters, thinking a little bit like the First World War, the Great Adventure, but came back almost old, almost haggard and world-weary. And it was just inevitable that if she had friends and comrades and colleagues who were in the business of flying aircraft or in amongst the, the bombs of the Blitz or nursing or fighting someone somewhere just given the statistics would have to go and it was all about how she dealt with that i also think in paris itself death was quite common whether it be because of the strict rationing and um, the fact that people had to work through the black market to actually exist whether it was because there was resistance from round about the end of 1940 early 1941 little cells started to form so people were taking risks especially young people and it's interesting to read some of the, the books written on the resistance, especially the later ones by people like Robert Gildea and Matthew Cobb, who have looked carefully at who the resistors were and what they did, particularly in those early years, and pared away the myths. And you find, especially youngsters who are upper middle high school or early university, that sort of age group is particularly prominent in many of the resistance stories from the early occupation. And these youngsters were not averse to taking risks and often paid a heavy, heavy price. And she would have seen the bodies of these youngsters, she would have seen the results of street fighting. And that plays a part in the novel because indeed that was factual, that was what happened. They picked up the pieces after the regime and even sometimes the French police had crushed various cells or anything that they thought was a piece of resistance. There was also the tragedy between the two men whose love one should not name, of course, that's uh, Giles and Mark. When Mark is killed and uh, Giles loses his lover, it's uh, so poignant. And that tragedy, of course, has a, a different aspect. It was one that was very difficult for people to acknowledge in the same way mm that in those days they could acknowledge the death of a partner, not necessarily of the same sex. So mm. why, why did you include a homosexual element in it? To be perfectly honest, I thought it seemed to me from my reading that there was much more homosexuality, probably about the same amount there is now, but it was, of course, very much underground and something that could not be admitted. But to me, the love between these two men was actually something very pure and very important. And it, just, it was just something that came into the book of its, almost of its own accord. I have to admit, Fiona, these characters were very badly behaved and ill-disciplined. <laughs> and I set them down a certain path. Off they went. <laughs> they were extremely naughty. And this came out of nowhere. I had this beautiful character, Mark Fabrice, who everybody loved. And um, he boarded in the, the boarding house with Marcy's boarding house with Giles. And of course, inevitably, because he was such a wonderful man, Mark was, of course, um, almost looked like a stretcher bearer from World War One. He was an ambulance attendant, and he was a man who would rush to a scene to rescue someone, regardless of the risk. So he was almost inevitably going to be hit by something at some point. And to me, 
a sense of loss is not just the loss between two friends or two lovers, be they man and woman. It can also be between lovers of different shades, if you like. And I thought his connection with Mark was so pure and so genuine that his loss would be truly profound. And I really do think it affected him for the rest of his life. When Marissa first sees him after he brings Mark's body back to the hospital, she said his sounds were like those of a wounded animal. And I still, when I read that, I still think I can hear his cries. And I think this is a man who has been hurt very, very deeply. Mm. So that was something to me that was very important in the issue of sorrow and loss in the book itself. Well, it certainly was another facet, which I found fascinating. And look, Catherine, at the start of the book, your writing style is lyrical, almost lush, if you like, as it establishes the background of Marissa and her family circumstances. Any subsequent description of scenery and so on does retain this, but as the consequences of war start to bite, the language you use is sparer and cut back and more incisive. Now, this does take a lot of skill. Was it hard to do? Um, In some ways, I wanted the language to echo the action. And as the story moves, it becomes more desperate. She becomes more exposed to danger, and I wanted the pace to move. So I used the language in some ways more sparingly to push the pace to another level, create a sense of urgency and almost breathlessness in the reader so that the reader was constantly wondering how she would emerge from one scrape after another. Would she survive? Would someone else survive? And I needed the pace to accelerate. And that was one way I felt that this could happen in terms of using the language rather than actually adding to the action because I really believe that less is more and if you overdo the action you just lose your reader so to me the paired back language the intensity of the language was the most important part and I hope that worked. (laughs) It made it a page turner it turned it almost into a thriller in certain sections yes you really did want to know what would happen next. Now that you Given that impression from the book that it sometimes is, and we touched briefly on this before, but I'd like to draw you out a bit more, it's sometimes all right to lie and to deceive. How do you mean this to be applied? That's a very good question, isn't it? (laughs) To be honest, I'd like to say, oh, it's never all right to lie and deceive. But of course, that's just not the case in life, is it? So I suppose, as with everything else in the book, I wanted to show shades. The book is about neutrality, shades of neutrality. It's about deception, whether deception's good or bad. Collaboration, what is collaboration? Can it ever be a good thing? And I wanted the reader to have a little bit of decision-making to effect by the end. Was this a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Do I like her? Do I not? Was this deception necessary? And if so, could she somehow have circumvented it and just laid the truth for all to see? And there is such a thing as being terribly truthful, copying the consequences and really not helping anyone. Or one can deceive a little and perhaps do that for the greater good. But it's something, it's a dilemma that I thought I'd leave with the reader. And it was great fun creating the dilemma, I have to say, because I couldn't decide myself whether it was good (laughs) or not. (laughs) But I thought, let's leave a little question hanging. The other question that always hangs on a book like this is, of course, what would I do in this situation? And I have no idea. Would I have the courage to work for the resistance? I don't think so. <laughs> it's a very difficult question. I have stopped saying to people, if I were you, I would, because mm. quite frankly, <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? No, <laughs> it doesn't. 
and, and there's no way you can replicate the circumstances of her decision making and say, oh, well, in that case, I would have done this, whereas she did that. In every turn, you think, oh, yes, because she's got these pressures on her and, and that situation, once again, is quite tight and intricate and that someone's depending on her. What does she do? And then, of course, you push forward and go, well, perhaps what she did was for the best. But, you know, it's, it's a tentative response. Is it or isn't it? Oh, the jury's still out. <laughs> yes, indeed, and the consequences of, of any slight mistake in those days was death, and that wasn't mm. looking too good. In fact, the readers don't meet one of the heroes of the French resistance in person, that's uh, René Carmille, but you describe this book as a tribute to him. There is a bit about him at the end, but you don't meet the character, obviously, because he died in Dachau. Now, how do you want us to regard René? Um, as far as I'm concerned, he was one of the unsung heroes, although, of course, now today he is far better known than he was, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, because basically he was a bureaucrat who helped enormously by doing just a few little things with his figures. He worked in the intricate establishment that was... German-run France. He occupied part of France. He didn't work in the Vichy area. He was actually based in Paris. But his job was indeed to look at rows of census material, look at what people had submitted as their returns on their occupation, their ethnicity, various skills and bits and pieces. And he then had to indicate who was Jewish and who was not, who had weapons experience, who had uh, served in the military and that sort of thing. And he was very clever in that he omitted the ethnic and racial and perhaps religious backgrounds of an inordinate number of people, thus saving them from attention by the German authorities. It's actually quite instructive to know that while 75,000 French Jews or Jews who were living in France at the time were deported, a vast number of whom didn't come back, there were actually well over 200,000 Jewish people in France at the time. So there's a big gap between those who were nabbed and those who were not. And people like René Camille really are unsung heroes, are the people who saved all those people from being deported and quite possibly dying. When I first read about him, I was amazed at how little was known and how much he had done. And I was very, very sorry to reach the end of his biography and see that he had perished in Dachau in '44, because it seemed to me it was so close to the liberation of Paris and, and so close to the end of the war that I felt really... The good Lord should have spared him. He should have survived. <laughs> but you can say that about so many. Um, well, you can. Yes, you can. The line of safe houses through which people escaped, he set that up more or less, didn't he? And it has a lovely name that's escaped me. Uh, the Marco Polo Network. The Marco Polo, um, yes. He was instrumental in that. I think he had quite a network of people because it did reach a number of countries, right through the low countries, France and into England. And I think there were other areas back towards Germany that time also pushed people through very, very carefully. And it's the little people. It's the people in the safe houses themselves who would just receive an unidentified man, woman or child in the middle of the night sometimes from someone they may or may not have seen before. They could have been arrested 10 minutes later and shot summarily. And yet they did it, and they did it time and again. They're the real heroes, aren't they? They're they certainly extraordinary are. people. Could I have done that, given that I have three children and a husband who may have been shot because of what I did? It's one of those eternal questions, isn't it? Mm, it is. Now, how can listeners obtain a copy of this book, which is both a thriller and a beautiful love story? It's available both in hard copy and on Kindle. You can get it through the publisher's website, and that's bigskypublishing.com.au. 
Also, I think Amazon has copies in here in Canberra, and I should think the same in Adelaide. Dimmox usually has some a good stock of copies and various other uh, bookshops around there. I was disappointed to see it wasn't in airport bookshops because my feeling is that once you get to the airport bookshops, you've made the grade. <laughs> Oh, Catherine, it's been absolutely a delight to talk to you and thank you very much for giving us your time and your insight into all the aspects of the book which are so fascinating. Thank you, Fiona. It's been an absolute delight.